Well, good morning, good morning. So very thankful uh, to be with you this morning, to have this opportunity. I'd like to say to Pastor Danny, I am honored to stand here. Uh, if you guys don't know, Pastor Danny is a wonderful man, wonderful man. I have had an opportunity to work with him uh, with the Southern Baptist Convention on the executive board. And one thing I can say about him is he is an encourager. He is so good at encouraging people, and he leads so well as the chairman of the executive board, and I am just honored to be with you this morning. Listen, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Exodus, Exodus, the fourth chapter. I'm going to read two verses, Exodus chapter four. I'm going to read verses one and two this morning. So for the sake of transparency, I wasn't ready to come up yet, so I need to get this, uh, these mints out of my mouth, so excuse me one second. All right, amen, amen, amen. So here we are, Exodus chapter 4. Listen, I'm glad to be here. I really am. Let me tell you, I am uh, from uh, Mesquite, Texas, and uh, I went to college, you all are going to love this, uh, at the University of Oklahoma. And so... I feel a little bit like Daniel when he experienced being in the lion's den, but that's all right. I'm still glad to be with you this morning. Exodus chapter 4, uh, beginning in verse 1, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Here's what it says, then Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a staff. Just for a moment, I'd like to talk to you from the subject entitled, What's in Your Hand? What's in your hand? In 1879, Konstantin Falberg, a Russian chemist who was working at a lab at John Hopkins University, went home after a long day of working on different chemical compounds. The story goes that he went straight from the door to the dinner table without washing his hands. He picks up a dinner roll and takes a bite and notices that it is extremely sweet. And notices that everything else that he had touched and put into his mouth was sweet as well. So he went back to the lab and started tasting various compounds that he'd previously worked with, which is not recommended at all, until he found the results he was looking for. And in 1884, he patented something called saccharin, which we commonly know now as sweet and low. This invention that would have a great influence on the culinary stage came from a chemist, not a chef. In other words, the least likely of individuals brought value beyond their imagination to a field they had no experience, no expertise, nor any credibility whatsoever in all because of what was on his hand. For Moses, he too would be used beyond his imagination, though he lacked the expertise, the experience, and the credibility, and the reality of him being capable of facing this monumental task with confidence was that he knew that Yahweh was with him. And this was affirmed by what was not on his hand, but in his hand. So listen, I have three boys, 11, seven, and 
uh, three, and my youngest of them is in that stage now where everything has a what and a why attached to it. Somebody knows what I'm talking about. And so one of the, uh, if you could say, one of the comforts that has come from COVID is that he does not go with us to the grocery store. Because when he would previously come with us to the grocery store, there would be a what and a why on every single aisle. What's that? Uh, that's that's ground, ground beef, son. What, what's that? It, it, it comes from a cow. So we can buy it and eat it. Why uh, do we need to eat it? Um, I, I, I don't, I don't, I, our bodies need nourishment uh, that, that we get from food. Why? Ah, oh, man, tough crowd. Let's see. Um, <laughs> The reason why is because if we don't eat, we die. And I'm looking forward to the day to add, when he asks me, why do we die? Because as a preacher, I may not be a farmer and I may not be a scientist, but I can answer that one and knock that one out the park. <laughs> but here it is that Moses is asking questions of God and God returns with a question. And my son, he asks the questions for the sake of learning because he doesn't know. But the creator of the heavens and the earth, the one who supersedes time and space, why would the God who sees all and knows all and is all ask a question? Hear me well, my friends, when God asks a question, it should cause you to pause and take note. God in his omnip, uh, 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 um, um, omniscience, omniscience, there we go, knows all, so therefore, the questions are not for him, the questions are for you. Uh, I can remember growing up, my, my mother would ask me before I would get ready to go outside, she would say, uh, did you clean your room? Well, uh, she knew that I didn't clean my room and I knew that I didn't clean my room, but she asked the question, did I clean my room so that I recognized that she knew, that I knew, that she knew, that I didn't do what she knew I didn't do. You understand what I'm saying, you're still tracking? So she already knew the answer, but she still asked the question so that something inside of me would be motivated to do the task at hand. So here it is, God is asking Moses a question, and this is not the first question that God has asked in Scripture in an effort to get his creation to come to a greater understanding of their sin, their situation, or even their salvation. Adam and Eve are in the garden. God has given them one command, do not eat of this tree. Because if you do so, you will die. And what happens? They eat of it, and then they begin to hide themselves because of their sin. And God asks Adam and Eve a question, where are you? From there, Adam tries to make things work and pull things together. And he says, uh, we were hiding because we were naked. To which God asks Adam the question, who told you you were naked? Not only that, Cain, the son of Adam and Eve, kills his brother Abel. And God comes to Cain and asks him a question, where is your brother? and ask him, why are you so angry? What about Abraham? God asked Abraham the question as it pertained to his wife, Sarah, where is your wife? And listen to me, fellas, if God has to come and ask you that question, just know you messed up big time. <laughs> but here it is that God is speaking to this man who he has chosen to lead his people into a land that he promised Abraham all those years ago that God approaches Moses with a question, but this question comes as the result of Moses wrestling with the task that was before him. And his ability to fulfill all that God was requiring of him. You have to understand chapter 3 of Exodus opens with Moses leading his father-in-law's flock through the wilderness when he is stopped by a supernatural sign. 
A bush is on fire, but it's not turning to ash. From that bush comes the voice of Yahweh, the God of his forefathers, with news that he heard the cries of his people, that he is going to deliver them from the bondage of Pharaoh, and that he is going to use Moses as his emissary between Pharaoh and himself and as his under-shepherd for his people. And upon hearing this, Moses immediately begins to ask questions. What blew my mind was that none of them were, uh, God, why is this bush on fire? What Moses begins to ask God is, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring out the children of Israel? To which God replies, I will be with you. In turn, Moses asks, if the people ask who sent me, who should I tell them? To which God says, I am that I am. Tell them I am sent me to you. And with each issue, that Moses has, God has and provides a solution. With each question, God provides an answer. And finally, Moses simply and matter-of-factly says to open chapter four, they will not believe me or listen to me. You see, Moses assumed that it would be his credentials that would cause the people to believe in God's redemptive power. He was not just afraid that they wouldn't listen to him, but he was fearful that they would not respond positively to what he had to say. Let me say this now, don't look to others for affirmation in doing what God has already called you to do himself. Just let the chips fall where they may. But you have to understand in Exodus chapter 3, verse 18, God had already promised that the leaders of Israel would listen to Moses. He assured Moses by definitively declaring, they will heed your voice. When Moses makes this protest, he may as well have said, but God, what if you are wrong? Okay, when we look at this purely from a human perspective, it seems as if what God is requiring from Moses seems to be absolutely impossible. He's only One man without money, without military might, or anything else that other men would deem necessary to free these people. Moses has been commissioned to deliver millions of slaves from bondage from the most powerful nation in the world. Listen, I can't even get my family to leave my parents' house in an orderly fashion. Before I know it, everybody has to go to the bathroom. Could you imagine trying to leave out of Egypt with all of the children saying, hold on, I have to use the bath. What do you mean? You've had all of this time and now you have to go? Here it is that this task that was before Moses is daunting, but God is preparing him for something. He's here in this desolate place and God speaks directly to him. And he asks him a question that is both practical and probing. What is in your hand? What Moses had was simply a staff, a walking stick or a rod that was used in his current occupation of shepherding. How regular, how ordinary. What is God getting at? When Moses looks at what's in his hand, what does he think of his staff? Listen, there are times when you hear from God and you look at what you have and all you see are your failures. For Moses, 
Surely this staff was a representation of his failures. He wasn't supposed to be a shepherd. He grew up in the palace. Every creature comfort in Egypt was at his disposal. The brightest minds taught him. The best cooks prepared meals for him. The best seamstress stitched his robes. The greatest artists painted the hallways that he ran down as a boy. But here in the wilderness, and as a shepherd, no less, He's here in a place he never imagined he would be, doing something he never imagined he would do. And it said that Egyptians despised shepherds. So how did this man who grew up as a prince of Egypt end up here? For many of you, you have found yourself asking the same question. How have I ended up in this place? How have I ended up in this situation or at this occupation? I'm not supposed to be here. This is not what I intended for my life. I have no idea how to wrestle with the place that I find myself in. This isn't how I planned and mapped everything out. If Moses were to trace his reasoning for his move from the palace of Pharaoh in Egypt to the pastures of a priest in Midian, he would have to begin with murder. Because you understand, the Bible informs us that Moses tried to take things and matters into his own hand. The Bible says in Exodus chapter 2, verse 11, one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that way, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Here's the problem. Moses murdered a man and attempted to hide his body, trying to take matters into his own hand. And dare I say, many of us find ourselves in places we are not supposed to be because we have attempted to do what only God could do in our lives. However, for Moses, his mistakes led him from the palace to a place where he would find his mission. The staff that was in his hand would be used by God through Moses. Moses' years of sleeping and tending to the flock would not be in vain. The years that he had spent shepherding had put into his hand the very thing that Moses would use for God's glory. God did not use the opulent scepter in Egypt that was in Moses' royal hand, but he did use the unassuming shepherd's staff when Moses found himself in a low place. And here's the simple truth. Oftentimes, God is more likely to speak to you in the pastures of life than the palaces. Oftentimes you have to find yourselves in places you never imagined you would be so that you can more clearly hear the voice of God speaking to you. And here is Moses in this place. It's amazing how God took a somebody turned nobody and turned him into a somebody by using something that everybody thought was nothing. That's a mouthful. God did it so that Moses could be used for God's glory. Oftentimes, what you view as a demotion, God is using it for preparation. Here it is that Moses is in the perfect place to hear 
from God. But if it's not your failures that you have in your hand, if the staff doesn't represent Moses' failures, but it was an opportunity for God to get him in a place where he could speak to him and prepare him, what about your fears? Maybe many of us hold our fears in our hands. Moses knew how difficult the job before him was. He knew how powerful Pharaoh was. He knew he didn't have any meaningful relationship with any of the Israelites. They aren't going to believe me, he said. They're they're not going to listen to me. The waves of fear and doubt begin to rise in him. So God used what was in Moses' meek hand to show him the mighty hand of God. The Bible says in chapter 4, God says to Moses in verse 3, throw your staff on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent. And check this out, Moses ran from it. That's what happens in the text. The Bible says God does this. And and listen, I haven't told you yet, but up to this point, um, staffs in the Bible don't exactly have a good name. As a matter of fact, the only time in which it had been mentioned previously to this is Genesis chapter 38, the story of Judah and his daughter-in-law Tamar. And I don't have the time to talk about that this morning, but boy, is it a doozy of a story. You think as the world turns has drama. Wait until you read Genesis chapter, somebody gets it, he gets it. Wait until you read Genesis chapter 38. So needless to say, staffs have a bad name. But if you think staffs have a bad name, wait till you hear about serpents. Here it is. God changes Moses' staff into a serpent. Turns it into this symbol that was worn by Pharaoh on his golden uraeus, a type of crown. The serpent in Egypt represented the power and supreme rulership of Pharaoh. And this uraeus was also worn by their goddess Isis. And when Moses sees this sign of a staff turned serpent, he runs. Now, if you read this too fast, you miss another miracle. Because Moses is an 80-year-old man who takes off running without stretching or even getting a heart attack. I caught a cramp, I kid you not, I caught a cramp this morning in the bed and all I had been doing was sleeping. So I can't imagine what's going on with Moses. The Bible says he runs, his fears begin to rise in him. His, he's full of fear, not just at this sign, but also the possibility of what it represents. I'm not sure how far he ran, but he obviously came back. Because the Bible says, then God commands Moses in verse four, put your hand out and catch it by the tail. All right, Um, anyone who has ever handled a snake before knows that the absolute worst place to grab a snake Y'all already with me? It's by the tail. Because if you grab a snake by the tail, guess what? It still has the freedom to move and to bite you. And God tells Moses, grab this serpent in the worst possible place. But you have to trust me. God says, grab the serpent, but God does not tell Moses that when he grabs it that he would turn the 
serpent back into a staff. He just says, grab it. He doesn't give him any assurances. And sometimes we want too many qualifiers from God before we are obedient to God. God, I'll do this if you do that. I'll go if you make sure I have this. God, but God is saying, when are you going to trust me enough to just grab what I tell you to grab? It's in your hand, Moses. God says, reach out, grab it. He didn't say what would happen. He didn't say that if you're bit, I'll heal you. He didn't say that it'll turn back into a staff. He just had to trust God that his fears wouldn't end up leading to a fatality. Question for you this morning, what are you afraid of? What place is God leading you to? What people are God leading you to to influence for him? Who is God sending you to that you might share the gospel of Jesus Christ with them? What opportunities is he providing for you to simply trust him? I love Moses' response to the situation because the Bible says he obediently put out his hand and he caught it and it became a staff again. I don't want you to miss this. The word caught in this text has connotations in the root of this word, meaning to prevail, show courage, or to seize. So in other words, Moses had to overcome his fears in order to catch something that could potentially be deadly to him. He did not approach his task with timidity, but with temerity. And in that moment, he learned that he could trust God. Are you willing to trust God and go full on into whatever it is that he has before you? Listen, God can use your tools to teach you. He can use what's in your hand at your disposal to cause you to grow in ways you never imagine. We have oftentimes duped ourselves into thinking that we must always take some course or take this class or read this book or acquire this skill and then God can use me. But the reality of it is God can use you whoever you are right where you are. God used a donkey. He can sure use you. And here it is. Moses has this task. Moses had exactly what he needed to learn to trust God. It was his staff that allowed him to overcome his fears for in his staff he would find strength. President Theodore Roosevelt had a ideology that, that pertained to foreign policy that was referred to as the big stick policy. And in this, Roosevelt described it himself as speak softly and carry a big stick and you will go far. At the core of this ideology was the belief that when faced with an enemy, you first try to peacefully negotiate, but you must have the strength behind you to back it up in case things go wrong. For Roosevelt, the strength represented the might of his military, especially the Navy. For Moses, his stick was his staff and that was his strength and it was not backed by the military, it was backed by the Almighty and it did not have any ships yet it still won a victory at the Red Sea. I'm trying to encourage you this morning to know God has already equipped you with exactly what you need to bring him glory. Hmm. 
Why would Moses seize the serpent? Why would he overcome his fears? God provides the answer for us in verse 5. Here's what God says, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Wait a minute, God, you want me to grab the staff so that somebody else can believe. You want me to put my life in danger so that somebody else would believe? You want me to step out on faith so that somebody else could get blessed by knowing you? The answer is yes, God says. He says, I'm going to use you in a way you could never imagine. Um, hear, me, hear me well, friends. Can you overcome your fear so that it could be the foundation for somebody else's faith? Can you overcome your fear so that it can be the foundation for somebody else's faith? What's in your hand, Moses? It's your staff. Your staff represents not your fears, not your failures, but it represents your future. God tells Moses that the staff wasn't just going to be useful to him in the wilderness as he cared for the flock. But in chapter 4, verse 17, God says, and take in your hand this staff with which you shall do signs. It's not your failures in your hand. It's not your fears in your hand, Moses, but it's your future. And it's how I'm going to use you in ways you could never imagine. What is in your hand is the very thing that God will use for his glory, not just in the desolation of the desert as a singular sign, but so that you can perform miracles to the masses. This staff or this rod Moses would use to part the Red Sea, he would hit to cause water to flow from a rock. It would be raised over the battle as Israel fought victoriously, and it would end up being called the rod of God. This simple shepherding staff would be a sign for the supremacy of the supernatural strength of Israel's Savior. And it was already in Moses' hand when he met God. What am I saying to you this morning? God has uniquely gifted you to represent him in a world that is reeling under the weight of sin. God has already endowed you with everything you need to be a light in this sin-sick and dying world. God has equipped you to be the one to display what deliverance looks like. What's in your hand? The truth that God has taken you from the bondage of Satan and sins that were holding you captive. What's in your hand? Your testimony is in your hand. What is your testimony? That God can save, deliver, and set free. And here's how it's made possible. Because of what was in Jesus' hands. Thomas said, I won't believe unless I can see his hands. And what was left in Jesus' hands? The scars from the nails that held him in place. What was in Jesus' hands was the representation of what he did on Calvary as he died for sinners like you and for me. What was in Jesus' hands was the result of God so loving the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. What was in Jesus' hands? Freedom for you and for me. That's what was in Jesus' hands. What was in Jesus' hands was for his Father's glory and to change our story. 
So for you today, what's in your hands? Can you glorify God with what's in your hands? Now, it may seem as if you are held back by your past, your failures, your fears, but God can take what you have and prepare you for your future. I told you to take note when God asked a question. Can I remind you of the question that Jesus asked? What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and to lose his soul? What does it profit for you to acquire money and status and homes and boats and cars and clothes if what you have isn't used for God's glory? Because even if you live on this earth for a hundred years, a hundred years is nothing in light of eternity. So do all you can do to ensure that the time that you have here is spent using what God has given you, that he might be made known throughout the world. Let us pray. Dear Father, we thank you. We thank you for this day. We thank you for this time. We are so very thankful for who you are in our lives. We thank you for your word, for how real and how true it is. We thank you for the example of Moses and how you found him in a desolate place where he was and you plucked him from that place to take him to heights he could never imagine as he would be used by you and for you. So Father, help us to ever be mindful that you are a God who will protect us, who will cover us, and who will keep us. Lord, help us to be reflections to this dying world of what it means to serve a true and a risen Savior. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.